0: Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz, joined, as always, by Dimitri Kalyugin. We have a very special guest with us today. We're going to discuss a whole wide range of subjects across the world, from Recent bombardments in Crimea, crises in the Caucasus. We're going to talk about Kazakhstan, possible mask mandates, and QR code technocracy nonsense coming back. You know, in 2023, we thought we were done with all of that, but you know, it it really never ends. But you know, we're joined again by a the fantastic Hervoye Morich from the Hervoye Morich show. We'll give him a chance to introduce himself in one second. Dimitri, how are you doing?
1: Doing great, Conrad. Excited to have our guest here with us. You know, um, it's a special guest episode. We haven't had one in a little while. And Gaurier, of course, will provide us with the utmost, like, up-to-date takes, I think. Also, just the, another different opinion, frankly. You've been hearing from myself and Conrad for, you know, a little while about the events happening in the news, geopolitics, religious issues, as well as, you know, we do speak about conspiracies, you know, and all, 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 you know, also just the, the idea that all of these subjects are intertwined. And I think an additional perspective... Especially for this week, would be much appreciated. So we welcome our guest on, and uh, yeah, I look forward to sort of speaking about these subjects here. I'm
2: pleased to be on, and you know, it's. Uh, I think it was in the early days when you guys started. Somehow we, I forget how we got uh, connected, but from the very beginning, I've been following World
0: War now, and uh, it's an honor to be on. Thank you so much. It was one of those things where I wanted to have you on so long ago. You were, I believe, the first person who had me on the show on their show since we started this. So it's only appropriate that we finally returned the favor. But, uh, you know, Hervoye and I were, uh, I have a lot of guests on even across America. But even though he may be an international guest, uh, we're actually not too far away. He's uh, down under over there in Mexico, not far from me here in central Texas. And, you know, he is sort of an international, an international man of mystery himself. So, you know, after his, you know, delightful introduction, I'd like to give, you know, Hervoye the opportunity you know, what are you known for? What are your shows? Where can people find you? And kind of what's your background in geopolitical analysis?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I'm down here in Mexico, and you, and you are up there in uh, what, what used to be Mexico, old old Mexico, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, I, I'm originally from Chicago, so proud American. Uh, but I'm ethnically a Croat. And I identify first as a Croat, funnily enough, fluent in Croatian, my name literally means Croats. Uh, my parents emigrated from Yugoslavia, but they're uh, Croatian, and so I- I've moved back and forth between the two worlds, uh, you know, in, in, uh, as I was a a youngster, uh, and and then basically, you know, I studied history and education in Illinois, and then in the 2000s, I sort of fell down the rabbit hole, and uh, I came to realize America an empire, you know, learning about state terrorism, false flag operations like 9-11, and then... You know, how everything works, basically, the Federal Reserve and all that. And I just decided I I wanted to permanently expatriate from the U.S. You know, and and other things. You know, I I, I love foreign cultures. I love to really go to a foreign country, learn the language, dig in, become like the locals, you know. And so my ticket out was Peace Corps, Mongolia. So 2006, uh, I was out living in a yurt in the Gobi in minus, minus 30 weather. Fantastic. Uh, I I was intermediate in Mongolian at the time, but I lost uh, most of it uh, and then came back briefly to Chicago and then decided to do a master in international relations at the Geneva School of Diplomacy in in Switzerland, 2009. I finished. Some of my professors were, uh, for example, Dutch-American lawyer, international lawyer, uh, Curtis Dobler, who was Saddam Hussein's defense counsel. They asked him to to defend Saddam. I had Yasser Arafat's brother-in-law. Ibrahim Sous is my professor. Uh, Alfred Zias, who's often on uh, RT, former UN special reporter, really cool guy. Uh, he was my uh, professor. And so, you know, those, those, those were sort of the people. Gorbachev was supposed to come to my graduation because they invite as an honorary guest every year. You know, that's part of the thing, what they do. Uh, he, he couldn't come. His right-hand man, I forget his name now, Boris uh, something, came. Uh, and then, by the way, mentioning Kazakhstan, Tokayev was the honorary dean of Geneva School of Diplomacy. Not at the time that I was there, but I think a few years later. Uh, and so basically after Geneva, I said the world is my oyster. Uh, and I ended up, I applied for jobs everywhere, Alaska, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Mongolia. I ended up in Mexico teaching at the top school, Tech de Monterrey, today, which is a globalist institution. It's directly linked to the World Economic Forum. And so I taught here, started my podcast uh, while I was a teacher. Uh, geopolitics and empire and then uh 2017 i got tired of mexico for a while i love central asia because of mongolia and then i i ended up getting hired at the Nazarbayev intellectual school which was set up by Nursultan sultan or his fund and so i basically worked uh in Semey, that's not far from the russian border northern kazakhstan for three years until COVID hit. in the meanwhile i got to meet gorbachev on a trip to russia and uh I even got to visit the Polygon, the principal Soviet nuclear test site, where Stalin dropped the first bomb in 49. I actually stood on one of the ground zeros where nuke fell. And yeah, when COVID happened, I just uh, ran back to Mexico. And uh, then I got hired on TNT Radio last year. So I've been doing TNT Radio daily uh, and then
0: keeping up with my podcast weekly. Well, that's fantastic. We're going to have all of those things linked below. You can catch me. I've done two appearances on TNT Radio. Maybe I'll do some more if you guys respond well. I know you will. This is going to be a great episode. But Hervoye, let's uh, let's just dive right into some of these subjects we talked about. The Mexico connection. It's we'd be so wrong to ignore just the probably one of the biggest global issues right now affecting this empire that I currently reside in with this completely porous border from your country here into my country. Yet, it seems that I'm much more at risk of any sort of consequences of this. You actually seem to be okay. We were talking about this before. So I'm wondering your thoughts from from a broad empire perspective, as someone who's observed the rising and now what appears to be the last few years, the fall of the unipolar globalist American empire now that we are apparently letting in 300,000 migrants a month at our southern border, mostly coming into my fantastic state of Texas. I'm wondering your thoughts on this. Is this, I mean, to me, like there has to be, I mean, we know this, but like there's people that want this to be happening and that are making sure it happens, right?
2: I, I think that's the principal thing you guys probably know. Uh, Alex Craner uh, who I've had on the podcast i need to get it back on we almost met last year because he's he's a fellow croatian also speaks spanish because he he was in venezuela back in the 90s and i think he's out in monaco now Uh, and he served in the croatian forces he told me that you know migration at this level that we're seeing it's it's a military tactic or strategy it's a weapon of war you had a greg abbott two days ago put out he said i officially declare an I officially declared an invasion at our border because of Biden's policies. We deployed the Texas National Guard, DPS and local law enforcement. We're building a border wall, razor wire and marine barriers. We are also repelling migrants and you know, I think this is the goal of the globalists. There's so much documentation about this uh just off the top of my head, you know, I remember this article from BBC many years ago where they interviewed Peter Sutherland, I think is his name who was this, you know, elite establishment figure who's attended Bilderberg. Uh, And he himself was in this BBC article saying basically between the lines that, yeah, we need to bring in a lot of migrants into Europe, you know. Um, And then he mentioned like UN and stuff. And so because for me, you know, this is what I focus most on geopolitics and empire. empire is a synonym for uh, globalism or, or, or world government, basically, because I think we're moving towards the final empire the world empire world world government for the first time in history and you know geopolitics for me is like the the science of politics like which includes you know the study of demographics technology economics you know culture all this stuff and so i you know i think the goal is to break down nation states then once you do that you create a supranational structure and then beyond that the United States is the number one target because, you know, many people have said that once America falls, the rest of the world is, is screwed. You know, I had on Ricardo Bossi three years ago on my podcast, former Australian Special Forces, head of Australia One Party. Uh, and he was saying that, you know, he was saying if America goes, that's it. Because where else in the world do you have this culture, you know, of, quote, democracy and and love of liberty and freedom and so many guns, right? There, there's really nowhere else. So if that American ethos, if economically America collapses politically and culturally, then we are pretty screwed. And so I think that's the name of the game. This is all deliberate. It's happening in Europe. Uh, the West is the principal target. Andrei Fursov. You guys know Andre Fursov, the Russian intellectual. I've emailed with him. I love his work. And he recently wrote, wrote about, about uh, I forget the title of it, but he was saying, he called it the dark, dark something. I'll I'll put pull it up in the meanwhile. But he was saying that along the same lines, he was saying that the West is the principal target, Europe and, and North America, and uh, the middle class is, is the main target. And so, yeah, th- th- that's my thought. And the purpose, again, if you have the idea of globalism is Babylon, right? Babylon, multicultural, destroy any homogeneous structure, family, tradition, religion, and then it, it's it is Brave New World ish where you don't have any structure, and so no one can no one has nothing to believe in, nothing to defend, and then that's when you plug into the world government, and you're and and the building block is the regi- regional union, right? North American Union, Central American Union, South American Union. We've got African Union, EU is the blueprints, Eurasian Union, you know, uh, ASEAN, and AMLO López Obrador, president of Mexico. He's done some good things to protect sovereignty of Mexico, but he's also a globalist on paper. You know, he's he's called for world government. He recently said that he wants to emulate the EU model and integrate Canada, USA, and Mexico, basically to create a North American union. And he's also said, you know, let's go beyond that. Let's create an American union. So he's literally said that. This is not conspiracy theory. It's, it's in the interviews. And then you had Bukele of El Salvador uh, say... A month ago, this was shocking for me. He said, hey, let's create a Central American Union based on the EU. Let's unify all seven Central American countries into open borders like the EU. And you had last year Rafael Correa of Ecuador, also ex-president of Ecuador, say, hey, let's emulate the EU in South America and create a South American Union. So I think migration is part of that
0: process. I think you're completely right. And it's great that you brought up the idea of the North American Union, because I've been hearing here in Texas, I've been hearing people. Uh, I, I remember I was learning to drive when I was 15. I was at the state driving school where you have to drive for a certain amount of hours with an instructor. And my, my you know random boomer instructor with a boomer ponytail was going off about how- he was afraid that they were going to force the Amero on all of us here in Mexico, the US and Canada, and we're going to have it just like the EU. And, you know, I've been thinking about that ever since that they do want to, that seems to be the, you know, they've completely rendered the actual border right now meaningless. So at what point you are like, yeah, you know, the Mexican government has failed, we're hearing all this talk about a war with the cartels, which, again, sure, a war on the American border fighting fentanyl sounds a lot more attractive than a foreign war in the Middle East. But let's not pretend that this wouldn't be hundred percent of pretext to basically further destroy any limitation between the U S and Mexico government. And basically, I don't know, incorporate all the States of Mexico as to maybe territories. And then eventually we have our North American union. Look at Canada. Canada is maybe on the brink of breaking up between Quebec. We're going to talk about their struggles of multi. I mean, look, they've, they've imported, you know, millions and millions of Indians. And now they're dealing with an ethnic religious Sikh Hindi conflict, basically on their borders, just because they've, they've forgotten what it meant to, you know, have immigration reasonable policies. And this is this is what happens. Of course, the cartel and fentanyl drug violence spills over into America. You know, the ethno-religious conflicts of the third world end up entering your country. And here we are. And you mentioned, of course, the multi-regional superstates. And we and Dimitri have talked about how our fear is that, you know, what'll happen is perhaps Russia will achieve some victory in Ukraine and then the West will, you know, kind of mold the situation to where we end up with, like you said, the Eurasian section of the broader connected you know it's like the hunger games or whatever the districts around the world in these different super regions and then they eventually all you know meet at the global council or whatever the un would become in this world and then you know we're one step closer if not already at the world government itself right and so uh yeah i want to hear your thoughts on the amero and the like you said the mexico the mexico union and how uh in fact, that leads directly into. There's this talk of this new president, the first. We're here all about the first female Jewish Mexican president. I'm wondering how would uh, how would she approach the question of the uh, of that American, Mexican, Canadian, North American, or a Central American union. I want your thoughts on that? And I would love to hear if you have any thoughts on that situation up in Canada. Of course, Canada I think is you know probably the most occupied World Economic Forum government in the world, if there was one.
2: Well, yeah, and I, I thought I'd mention, uh, I forgot to mention, you know, raw egg nationalists who I've had on my podcast, he just published for Border Hawk, the worst is yet to come, prepare for climate migration. And he says mass immigration has been used as a tool of deliberate social engineering in the West for decades. Our leaders have used it to make our beautiful nations virtually unrecognizable, to draw us to the brink of chaos, uh, given the chance they will go further still, if, even if they don't end up importing hundreds of millions or billions from the third world, with the threat of climate change, our leaders will have the excuse to bring as many people here as they need to realize their dreams of global government and the end of the nation state. Uh, and and you know when you mention uh, Amero, I mean this is not conspiracy theory. So you know I taught at the Tec de Monterey. It's it's the only school in the in Latin America that goes to Davos. It's owned by FEMSA, this corporate conglomerate that's officially linked to World Economic Forum. In fact, the convenience stores that we have everywhere here, uh, they're called Oxos, like 7-Elevens. On the campus, uh, the main campus of Tech de Monterrey, they are prototyping an Oxo that's cashless. You scan the QR code, you walk in, take whatever you want, and you leave. Uh, and then they're saying if that works, they're going to replicate it to the rest of Mexico, like hospitals, malls. You name it. So is it any wonder that it's they're prototyping that on the campus of the tech, which is officially linked to World Economic Forum? And so my point is Robert Pastor, who's known as the father of the North American Union, he would give lectures and visit at the tech. I would attend those lectures. I've met him. And in fact, I've got his book, North American um, Community, I think it's called, or North American Idea. I actually assigned chapters of it in my classes when I taught North American scenarios at the tech and I, I I believe I had the last living interview with him. He died of cancer, January twenty fourteen, and I skyped him into my class with my students, December twenty thirteen. It's still it's still up on YouTube, Dissident Thinkers, my old channel. Uh, and so yeah, they, they their plan was North American Union, uh, and 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 so it's 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 the plan, you know. And and then when you mention, by the way, one thing I I'll, I'll add, you know, we got the twenty twenty six World Cup now, it's going to be held in North America canada usa and mexico i think that's intentional to it's it's part of that because it it's got to be economic integration political and cultural so that's part of that indoctrination process for prepping for north america you guys probably know daniel estulin you know russian former uh fsb in the 90s he had the number one spanish show on rt erete en espanol that got canceled Bilderberg book he lives here in Cancun Mexico I got to spend a day with him many years back I organized a conference for him in Guadalajara and a cool guy he had an interesting theory that when it comes to this regionalism you know mentioned Eurasian Union North American Union that maybe the name of the game now maybe the global globalization and the system that we have nation-states you know if you look at it from like a pragmatic or objective perspective, maybe they can't exist anymore. Maybe like the new rules of the game are regional unions. And so you kind of have to now move into that system. So I think that's also something to keep in mind. And Shrine Bomb, yeah, I saw that article. I had on a guest on TNT yesterday, Robert Bito of Mexico Unexplained. And he was telling me he thought Shrine Bomb is probably going to win. And then I saw this article from Jerusalem Post today, which says, uh, I lost it somewhere here. Yeah, it says that Jerusalem Post, uh, Mexico on track to have its first Jewish female president. She's the front runner, probably, but she's running against Hochito Ho- Galvez, who's, you know, attended Davos. And my view is that going, you know, you, you were talking about, I think, Offair, the mayor of, of, of Moscow, for example. M- my view is that most politicians are captured by the globalists. And that's like, we're talking like COVID demonstrated this and I paid attention in Mexico. We're talking mayors, you know, just all over Mexico, just random, you know, mayors of little cities in Mexico, governors of, of states completely captured, uh, you know, and just to give you an example, when I came back from Kazakhstan to, uh, to, to, to Mexico, I was shocked to see all this public transport infrastructure they were building. Like th- there was no, no such development in Mexico. And I'm like, where's this coming from? What's this all about? And you, then you realize it's the green agenda. They want to take our cars away, so they're building mass public transport to say, hey, you're not going to need your car anymore. Look, we built all this public transport for you. And then I discovered Guadalajara is a resilient city. I'm like, what? What's a resilient city? And then I find on the actual, you know, Jalisco is the state here in Mexico where I'm at. The actual website of the, of the government it says its uh, resilient cities are financed by the Rockefeller Foundation. it's basically a smart city and then the documents say cashless we want a cashless society pre-crime you know all this crazy stuff and i'm like then the governor enrique alfaro of jalisco he's in on this there's no way like it's open it's openly says he's getting money from rockefeller foundation they're gonna they want to get rid of our cars he was floating stuff like you know it's illegal to mandate vaccines according to the state constitution of jalisco he's like well we're thinking about changing the state constitution to allow us to mandate force vaccinate you, and he also said we're also thinking about this idea. If you leave the state of Jalisco and uh, to come back, you you would need a passport. Uh, what do you call it? The the passport uh, certificate. They didn't apply that, but just the fact that they were thinking like that, that just shows you to what degree. And it's the same thing, you know, where I was in Kazakhstan, in Croatia, you know, to, to differing degrees. It's not every single politician at every level, but you know, there there's nuance. But there's some that are that are and some that aren't. And it's, it's really a struggle, you know? And so Scheinbaum, I think she was, she was, you know, her, I've heard Hochito, the, the other female or, or um, her. I, AMLO's been pretty good so far. Even conservatives in Mexico have said he's been the least worst. But I think uh, after AMLO, we're screwed. There's really no one kind of like AMLO. And Claudia's pretty globalist, Hochito. Even this Marcelo Ebrard, This guy came out and announced Plan Angel, Angel, which I call Plan Diablo. He literally said, we need to roll out nationwide uh, facial recognition, morphological detection, drone tracking, and an AI ecosystem to track everything. Again, that's that globalist system. So, yeah, it's not looking Mm -hmm. good in Mexico.
1: (laughs) No, exactly. And I think that is mostly where you see the globalists kind of agree wherever they come from around the world. So you mentioned Sergei Sibyanian, the mayor of Moscow, the the big pusher of QR codes, mask mandates inside of Moscow, which was broadly rejected by the very skeptical, I guess, you could say, uh, Russian people and even residents of Moscow who really, especially since the Soviet period, a lot of the Russian boomers just really weren't up for following more authoritarian sort of uh, dictates of anybody, frankly, even Sibyanian, who's been around for about 20 years. But um, what's interesting is, again, in, in Russia today, they're moving to you know uh, mandate masking again in, in legal courts as well as in government buildings. So especially visitors for uh, official ceremonies. And there were rumors, of course, now from the from certain uh, journalists actually who went to film and also interview Vladimir Putin for some of the press conference since the beginning of COVID that you know they did have to quarantine for I think it was two to three weeks prior to being allowed in his vicinity in the same being in the same room as him, which uh, is really curious that. Um, yeah, it's 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 kind of uh it's kind of a trend we see around the world. And I'm not saying that you know Sabianio is necessarily a bad guy. It's just simply this is the the default state for a lot of these local politicians. They seem you know they seem to believe or maybe that's what their sponsors or some of their lobbyists uh you know they argue that hey, this is just the the trend they have to push in their particular um, cities or regions which they govern and look in in regards to mass mass migration you mentioned it being a weapon uh if any of our listeners think we're simply fear-mongering and you know this is a conspiracy of sorts and it's unChristian, you should be welcoming of everybody and it's like no this is a weapon of the globalists used in the modern era and perhaps even an ancient weapon like let's just think back to history. Like everybody's, you know, memeing on on TikTok about, you know, oh, everybody's husbands or, you know, boyfriends are thinking about the Roman Empire. Well, let's just not forget, let's remember, think back to how the Roman Empire was destroyed. It was mainly because of mass migration. And, you know, you can say it wasn't, it was more or less organic back then, but the globalists, they know their history even better than some of us do. So frankly, they they studied how mass migration can destroy nation states, can destroy uh, sort of foundational foundational bodies of people such as the, I guess you can say, Native American people who, you know, I consider the the Anglo-Americans right now who have, you know, invested into this land culturally, religiously, and have built up, you know, households, families over the last 200, 250, 300 years. So those who have been in America for that long have built up what we know today as the United States. So those particular foundations would need to be eroded by migration the, I guess, the foundational, I guess, families and cultures of Mexico would need to be eroded by those migrating from the South, from completely, you could say, foreign countries, nations, which are related maybe by language or, you know, Spanish or Portuguese, but still they are not native Mexicans. And so this sort of uh, melt, this melting pot strategy is used against, I think we can see it all around the world like Israel, and we spoke a few weeks ago about the fact that the Eritreans the, even the Israeli Zionists had issues with the Eritreans and they were about to kick them out um, Netanyahu spoke very strongly about Eritrean refugees, mind you they had actual refugee status so again it's it's a little bit um, a little bit morbid kicking out actual refugees but I guess if they're rioting you know, it is what it is and we've all seen France right, let's just know there are no more questions about exactly what was used in France. A sort of tactic to, I guess, a tactic by the globalists to put even Macron, who has been showing signs of, maybe signs of life, that he had certain sovereign aspirations or maybe independence, you know, see, thinking about France as an independent state, away from the EU, away from, as you mentioned, Cordier, that regional control territory, which the EU essentially is the prototype for. They want, I guess, most of these, like AFRICOM, for example, you mentioned uh And the Americas ought to be united under a certain economic, cultural, maybe even political and military alliance of sorts that you use the prototype. And as soon as Macron, you know, starts to show some sort of signs of life, of course, he gets insane riots, which is still continuing to this day. And, uh, you know, hundreds of government buildings destroyed, lots of billions of dollars of damage. And look, let's just look at how countries which are somewhat trying to, again, free themselves from globalist influence are also reacting to mass migration. In Russia today, there are almost on a weekly basis, hundreds of illegal immigrants being apprehended by the police, by uh, by the FSB, by the Internal um, Ministry of Internal Affairs forces. Essentially, you have SWAT raids on these uh, apartments, housing these illegal immigrants on some of the gymnasiums. So a lot of them, a lot of these immigrants, they work. And they also, you know, spy in martial arts gyms, for example. We have, we've seen martial arts gyms raided by Russian police. And not that I'm supporting feds raiding places, but it should be considered that Russia, for whatever reason, has begun cracking down on illegal migration. And this is uh, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Kazakhs, not to even speak down upon these Central Asians, but who is letting them into the country in the first place? And they've been, you know, allowed to sort of migrate with no issues into Russia for the last 30 years, pretty much. Uh, in a very unhinged fashion, with no no particular uh, you know l- l- lashback, and uh, it's also worthy to consider the fact that the Russian media as well. I'm not sure about RT in particular, but let's say Sidegrad, for example. It's a more right wing version of RT, a more sort of orthodox you could you could say channel, which Alexander Dugin is a co founder of. And our, um, Sadegrad has openly, you know, almost on a fortnightly basis, has published videos speaking about these crackdowns on the migrants. And so they've kind of maybe gotten a green light somewhere from the Kremlin that, look, perhaps it's time to wake the Russian people up to this idea that illegal migration is actually a great evil. And of course, more examples we can bring about the, bring about the Hungarians, obviously, um, mentioning the fact that migration is a threat to their nation and kind of locking themselves down. The Greeks and the Turks are always having that immigrant issue. And that's that comes up in, in intermittently every few years or so, and naturally, even a few days ago at the u n uh, the President of Poland accused Lukashenko of using illegal immigrants as a weapon against the Polish, even though let's be real uh, i'm not sure what kind of illegal immigrants travel from Belarus to Poland like i, I can 't even picture imagine in my mind. The, the people, but like maybe local Belarusians, I'm not, I'm not even sure, frankly. It's not like that's a big deal compared to some of the other issues around the world. But certainly it is a weapon that's used by the globalists. And frankly, one of the few weapons, including, you know, the green agenda, global warming, which Zelensky actually did mention, he said the world is going to die in a few years because it'll get warm. I'm paraphrasing him as his speech at the UN, where he says, because Rush, the Russian war is distracting everybody. It's like, hello, did Greta, did Greta vonberg like I mean, I know Zelensky met her a few weeks ago, but really, did she really inspire Zelensky that much for him to speak about global warming at the UN? It's like, how 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 much do people really need to be distracted by this issue? And uh, yeah, it's it's quite it's quite shocking, but completely right. Illegal immigration should not be ignored. And I guess to kind of end it, especially for the Christian folks listening and thinking, well, this is just this is boring. This is a non. This is a non-issue. Um, of course, we me and Conrad spoke about certain Orthodox Christian prophecies about mass immigration in the future and especially in the future of russia in particular there are two prophecies about chinese mass immigration into siberia and i just need to like kind of put a disclaimer up that this is not to say anything wrong anything is wrong about multipolarity with russian chinese relations but these these are simply prophecies given by russian elders to the russian people there's no strings attached it's not to say that chinese immigrants are bad or that russian immigrants are bad it's just this is just the prophecy that was given to us. In 1977, schema or and Seraphim Tiapuchkin basically said, the seizure of Siberia by Chinese will not happen through military means. The Chinese, due to open borders, will begin to move en masse to Siberia. They will buy land, real estate, enterprises, apartments. Everything will happen in such a way that one morning Russian people will wake up in a Chinese state, not a Russian one. And then prophecy goes on, but that's the Crux of it, that is the first two lines of the prophecy by Elder Seraphim. And again, Seraphim of Viritsa has a similar prophecy, which, you know, we've repeated previously. But very kind of curious that even Russian elders and saints, these are very esteemed people, I guess, uh, even during the Soviet years, openly amongst, you know, amongst their followers and amongst their fellow Christians spoke about the threat of illegal immigration, at least, you know, somewhat eschatologically, you could say.
2: Yeah, I I would just add, you know, I I read an article. In Croatia soon, twenty five percent of Croatia will no longer be Croatian. And you know, I am my wife is Mexican, so I I married a brown person. My kids are mixed, you know, and I'm I'm lucky because no one can call me now uh, a white supremacist. I'm Mexican, you know, I'm a minority, you know, you can't. And on top of that, I'm a Slav. So, you know, the Aryan white supremacists were going to kill us. My grandpa was a Nazi prisoner. And I say this because I've had times on Twitter where I've had these probably feds try to make me out to be some pro-Hitler Nazi. I actually had this Canada vice journalist getting funding from the Canadian government trying to associate me uh, as some right wing, you know, Nazi anti Semitic,al fascist. And I actually had one of my listeners who who's anti-Semitic and hates Jews put in a comment. He called me my podcast "Jew Politics and Empire" because I don't obsess over the Jews. And I (laughs) quote, I quote, tweeted that vice journalist, you know, on Twitter publicly, like, "Look, here's the proof. My own listeners say I'm not." You know, as you're saying it, because, you know, that's how they try to take you down. I thought I just mentioned that for fun. But yeah, you know, when I was in Switzerland, when I returned to Switzerland to defend my thesis, the Swiss border guard was like, you know, just questions that they ask, like, where's your permanent address? And I said it was in the U.S. And he's like, good. You know, he, he was like, he didn't want me there. Try, you know, doing this border stuff in Kazakhstan. You're going to be kicked out quickly. So, you know, all countries maintain their uh, borders and so, yeah, you know, just just and and you know, I, I've heard that theory before that the Chinese will populate the Far East, uh, Siberia, and so yeah, I think that's something to think about. By the way, you mentioned prophecy, uh, you know, if you th- if you, if you think about the last days, the Book of Revelation, something I often think about. I think there might be a big war towards the end because John Nepomuk talked about he saw a sea of soldiers, something like that, right? That he counted two hundred million, right? And I found this U.S. government, official U.S. government military assessment. I lost the bookmark. I got to find it again. But it was an official report, which they assessed if the U.S. went to war with China, how many conventionally, how many men could China raise up in their conventional forces? And it literally said exactly 200 million just like the number that appears in Revelation. So, and then it talks about, you know, it, John saw like red, right? Like red, which is associated with China and the dragon. And so I th- I personally believe that eventually there will be a war between, you know, maybe we'll call it, you know, between the multipolar world uh, and Pax Americana. I I think at some point, it, it, it makes sense with what we're seeing right now, you know, geopolitically, secularly, if you add in the Bible as well, it kind of it kind of makes sense. I
0: don't know. Well, Roy, you'd be fascinated by the prophecies of St. Paisios, Elder Joseph of Athopedhi, some of these figures, because they talk about exactly that. They talk about the big war to come with Russia and Turkey. And then usually they say eventually, you know, them perhaps being allies at one point, the Chinese will come in with armies of hundreds of millions. And, you know, the Bosphorus, Constantinople, you know, maybe even your homeland of Croatia, these places, they've always kind of been the center of, the world, you know, as a proud geocentrist myself, I believe that you know Jerusalem truly is the center of the universe there in the Eastern Mediterranean. So I think that place, that air part of the world, is always going to be relevant here. But you know, Dmitry, we talked about even you know not controversial figures like Vyacheslav the Child. He spoke about you know the whole things going out in the Chinese Far East and whatnot, and that was you know in the 90s and 2000s. So you know the, this has been on the minds of Russian nationalists and patriots who have seen, you know, the rise of China and, you know, Russia's perhaps not quite as fast rise and the fact that they have that very lack very unpopulated far eastern section right but uh, Hervoya, you talked about you know just being accused of by uh, canadian journalists again i think canadians are some of the they really seem like the enforcers on i love my right-wing yeah. canadians i know we've seen our we love our diagonal fans and they're the, all mm. that anti-hate stuff so you've seen all of that but it seems that outside of that canadians are like the they're like the enforcers of this nonsense on like the white man you know like they they run around you know making sure everyone feels bad calling everybody nazis calling everybody these things and look like if you, if you stand up for anybody, I guess that's white or any country, I guess that is European or Christian, you know, standing up for itself. You know, maintaining its sovereignty. You get called a Nazi. You get called all these things. And I mean, people need to remember: there's only like 800. You know, white people. You know, Hervoye, I, I include you in and in white people. Slavs. You know, I'm, I may be I may be an Anglo German, but you're you're all right in my book, right? I, I, I'm, the, uh... I'm Mexican. Come on, I'm I'm Mexican, all right? <laughs> yeah, well, you're a you're, you're a castiza Mexican, right? That's where we're at. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I'm saying there's only, you know, about 800 million people. And it's this. Uh, so are we minorities yet? Like we are living in the globalized world. When am I going to be able to claim minority status? Right. Like, is that what is doesn't that part of this? Yeah, pretty soon you'll be a minority.
2: You know, I heard a funny story from uh, a New Jersey teacher that I worked with. He told me he had a South African student and you, you know how it is now. Everything's prioritized for the woke minorities and, and, and all of that stuff in the U.S. and the West When it comes to, you know, funding for university and all that. And the student, and he was telling this as a joke, but this was a true story. So a student, high school student from South Africa wanted to apply for university and scholarship and all that. And he asked the teacher, what should I put? You know, when it asked the different identities, ethnicities, well, he's like, well, you're from South Africa, put African. He was, he was a a Caucasian white, but he was from South Africa. So he was a South African citizen and he, he had the right to put African, you know, and he did and he got the scholarship so i think you know i thought that's a funny a kind of a ridiculous but you know an example of how ridiculous all of this is but you know he technically he's african you know south white south african is african so you know
1: yeah i think it's uh it's interesting how you know identity is you know still still really important to people especially those who have some connection to culture and especially religion i think we've been talking before the stream began you know how religion really does really does so closely tie us to culture and to exactly how we see ourselves ethnically even and tribally it's it's all it's it's all you can't really disconnect it to or even you know these things are always somewhat tied together in the, in the world and we see that most pronounced i think in in sort of geopolitical news where you know we see conflicts between say the palestinians and israelis or even in more recent news uh the the azeri people and the armenians which uh frankly the the recent conquest of uh, of artsakh by azerbaijan especially you can almost say somewhat bloodless but it has it has come at a cost and you know several russian peacekeepers were killed uh armenian uh, armenian military staff some civilians as well so this uh, particular conquest in the middle of september has um has essentially resolved the big issue for the azerbaijani people this republic of artsakh and in you know, Nagorno karabakh region which they wanted to take back ever since, again, this uh, false division of, you know, the taking of Azerbaijani territory and marking it on the map as Armenia by the Soviets. Well, this is kind of like a almost a post-colonial issue we've seen all around the world in the Middle East and Africa. And again, now we we see it in a place most people maybe not even, don't even associate this issue with in the Southern Caucasus and that particular region near Turkey. And Armenians are mourning, mourning the loss of Artsakh, but they should also consider the fact that, well, how many of them have actually traveled to the Artsakh Republic or even the Artsakh region in their lifetimes because i mean i mean frankly uh, most armenians live overseas so What's interesting about Armenia is, like, doing researches, the, the majority of Armenians are actually in a diaspora abroad, so in the United States, in Russia, even Ukraine. So, over seven million Armenians are actually living abroad. Meanwhile, Armenia proper has roughly about three million people, and there is this relationship between the Armenian diaspora where they kind of push the idea of Armenian nationalism strongly onto the people at home. And in fact, we've seen Armenian nationalism somewhat backfire. Uh, We didn't see any uh, uprisings against Pashinyan, we didn't see any... We just saw kind of mourning and sadness, sort of this uh, useless depression. Uh, especially from those opposing Pashinyan, there is no, there are no coups, there are, there is no call for a Maidan, there is no call for revolution, and it's almost as if uh, Pashinyan may even win the next election, given that, given that the reaction has been very small to this fall of Artsakh, the Artsakh Republic, and yeah, I, I guess going back to identity, now the people of Artsakh, given regardless of if they're Azeri or Armenian, will need to, of course, receive. Uh, Azerbaijani citizenship, they'll need to possibly even learn Azeri, the, the Azerbaijani language, they'll need to adopt a certain certain traits of Turkic culture, and maybe even their children will travel to Baku to go to university, there's all these considerations that they need to take into account, and this is we're talking about 150,000 people here, so maybe you can say 75 to 50,000 of them are probably ethnically Armenian, but the rest of them do probably have Azeri, Azerbaijani roots, going back to that 20th, 20th century division you know, since all this land was essentially part of the Eastern Bloc Soviet uh, Soviet Union. So it's it's a very interesting development that we've seen. And I guess on a very small scale, like um, we did speak before this stream, how nation states are kind of maybe falling to the wayside now that multipolarity is here. And now that the world is being divided into larger blocks, perhaps you can call them these new age empires. And hopefully this isn't, again, a globalist plan B, but it's in fact these regional empires which help help these local cultures thrive while being under this massive political, you can say geopolitical umbrella, you know, whether it be Chinese, Turkic, um, you know, Middle Eastern, you can say like a big Sunni umbrella, or even in Russia, like a Commonwealth of Independent States of sorts, like what exists between Belarus and Russia today, like it's called the Soyuz Negosudar, Allied State, or, you know, the Commonwealth of Independent States, even though it's, it's very, it's kind of dying before our very eyes. But nevertheless, in the future, perhaps there will be a new imperial type model. But Going back to the nation state question, Armenia as a small independent nation state, which has almost nothing akin to its neighbors, it's not like its closest Christian neighbor, Georgia, which is also 90, 98, 99% Christian, doesn't relate to Armenia at all, despite the fact that they're only 30, 40 kilometers away. So you can drive to Georgia in about an hour by car and the, the Georgians don't associate with Armenians at all. They say see them as these like schismatic rejects. And there's no assistance, there's no compassion there. So Armenia is very much alone, the small nation state. And look, the big the big nations around that simply have decided to take this portion and of you know Nagorno-Karabakh, the Artsakh Republic, and simply provide it to the uh, Azerbaijani. You know, the deal has been made. Israel has consented. Iran has again consented as well. Surprisingly, Turkey consented, and it seems that Russia has also you know has given the green light for this particular transaction to go ahead. And so the future of nation states, I think, are. Uh, put into very much put into question here because Armenia simply, you know, being divided like that, not to say I'm sympathetic towards Armenia, but simply seeing this occur, I think is very, um, it's very sobering for, especially those of us thinking about geopolitics of the big picture and what the future of, uh, international relations may be.
2: Yeah. I had on Kevor Kalmasian of Syriana analysis on my podcast a while back. He's great. He's ethnically Armenian. I just saw him on RT and, um, you know, I, I there was a great, uh, there are a number of things. You probably follow the Twitter account Sprinter, which is pretty big. He summed it up two days ago. He, put, he, he said, what's happening in Armenia in one photo? And it's a photo with Pashinyan with George Soros, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, and then Alex Thompson of UK Column, who I'm friendly with, we share each other's stuff. I've had him on my podcast. One of his, he shared one of the uh, comments from one of his subscribers on Telegram, John Jones, who writes, the Armenians are caught in a multi faced device, betrayed by their own leaders, disregarded by Russia, misled by the West, and at the mercy of an ancient and murderous foe. Uh, you may have heard of Serbian-based um, analyst Nikola Mikovic, who writes for me on occasion, You know, he just penned a piece, Nagorno-Karabakh, who is responsible for the Armenian defeat, Pashinyan, Russia. And then The Cradle, uh, which I'm sure you guys read, uh, which is a good uh, outlet. Yeah, Pepe writes, and what's Charmin I think, is heads it up. She's Lebanese, I think. They just published yesterday an article along the same lines of what Nikola wrote. For me, Russia's reluctance to secure an indecisive Armenia will weaken both. And so, you know, I think there's a number of factors here. I think one is it's like a war of attrition. A lot of these wars, frozen conflicts, irredentist things that go on for decades, centuries, you know, I think at some point... It get it. It does get tiresome, and you know, Nikola often used the words in, in his articles: ca- capitulation, capitulate, and it's it's like a in Mexico, lucha libre, like like a wrestling match. At some point, you know, one side gets tired, and they have to sort of capitulate, and then yeah, let's move on with life, you know. Uh, and so, I think maybe that's what's eventually happening here. And, w- and what you mentioned, Dmitri, about nation states, uh, I for me, my my feeling is. My solace is is in you know Christ, the Bible, and God, and so not some leader. Let's say you know like Amlo or a Putin or a Trump or even RFK Jr. or Lukashenko. Who I think you know Lukashenko in some ways is is a cool cool guy. I've liked some of the things he's done, his attitude, and his not locking down and COVID and stuff. But for me, it's like number one is the Bible and Christianity and faith because even the Eurasian Union, right? Which In my mind, it's a supranational globalist project, supposedly it came about. It was Nazarbayev's idea in 1994, supposedly, you know, technically he was my employer. I've visited his library foundation in Kazakhstan, which has got all his memorabilia over the years. I've seen, I don't, I'm not sure if it's open to the public. We had a special event with the kids in the UN, model UN, but I saw one of his books, which like literally had a title that included globalist or something you know he, he's a full-on globalist if you ask me Nazarbayev but he might be like the type like AMLO who these globalists are they're more humane you know they're globalists maybe they're Freemasons or something but they still kind of want to do some good for the people meanwhile you've got these other like absolutely eugenicist Malthusian globalists like the British you know the European British Washington crowd who just want to like kill everybody but you know the Eurasian Union is I think part of this project and I I recently Klingendale which is this globalist think tank which I sometimes follow they wrote three years ago a a report that said Eurasian Union is is based on the EU model again so you know what Putin and Nazarbayev or whatever whoever are now continuing the Eurasian Union project That's still globalist. And, you know, I have to take the Bible seriously when it says at some point you're going to have a, you know, the beast is going to take control over all nations, all peoples, you know, rich and poor doesn't matter. You know, look at the Jack Ma, right? Rich Chinese guy. He went against the regime. They sent him off to teach in Japan, you know, or the same thing happens in the West to, to oligarchs in America or Europe. And so, I think we have to recognize, you know, take the Bible at its word that, yeah, we're going into, into the crucible, you know, into into the global meat grinder,
0: uh, and, you know, come to terms with it. No, I, I, I agree. I think in many ways we have to, uh. You know, like I say, put not your trust in princes, you know, we look towards. We talk, I mean, we just have to, we literally just our last ether hour episode, we talk about how in many ways the forces on both sides of the war envision is sort of I mean, you might like the episode Hervoya. We talk about the new heavenly Jerusalem plan and how there are multiple billionaire Zionists on the Ukrainian and Russian side, as well as in Israel that perhaps have a plan for southern Ukraine to turn it into you know, to turn it into perhaps an Israel 2.0 and, you know, make it, a, you know, de-Christianize it and turn it into a a sort of second Israel. And I believe that those people might have those ideas, but in many ways, what many will for evil, I think God often wills for good. And that's not to say that I believe I'm looking at every conflict and violence happening, like, oh, look, amazing, how is God going to use this necessarily? But we know that God used, I mean, we've all read the Bible, right? God uses a host of military conflicts and the Roman Empire and everybody to facilitate the spread of the gospel and his word and you know we're in not just a pickle with globalization but we're in a you know a spiritual pickle with people around the world you know i provo- yeah, it may not be as bad and you know you know still somewhat catholic mexico i'm sure it still has a lot of problems but here in america i mean it's a it's a spiritual desert right and uh you know in, in many ways we're just uh you know as father seraphim rose said us in these in the western countries that weren't under communism are kind of entering the drought that those communist eastern bloc countries experienced for so long and they finally seem to be maybe emerging in a more spiritual light whereas you know we are finally uh us christians here are going to be entering our our persecution era unfortunately as they say you know today in russia tomorrow in america that was said in what the the 70s 80s at the beginning of the catacomb saints book published by by saint herman's monastery but uh, yeah armenia azerbaijan a lot of stuff going on there, like you said, Dimitri, You point out the the Turk, the rising Turcosphere, You know, Kazakhstan. You know, I'm uh, I'm not fully versed on you know Turkish Kazakh relations, but you know, in theory, uh, you know, from an ethno linguistic perspective, you know, if there is that that superstate in Central Asia, I think as a, as a heartland, you know, with fertile lands and you know access to water on the Caspian and Mediterranean, that the Turkish world would be would be quite powerful. I also don't think it would be. Particularly good for uh, for surrounding areas and perhaps uh, you know Christian minority groups living within that area at all, based on you know historic understanding. But you know, kind of speaking of the periphery of the Turkish world, I think we want to talk about Crimea has been bombarded recently with drone and cruise missile strikes, explicitly like British and American supplied hardware. Really, again, we've talked a lot about you know the red lines that keep being crossed to no response from Russia, which. You know, only feeds into, like we said, ideas that maybe maybe certain powers that be are not as serious about their irredentist or their, you know, defensive claims as we might hope they are, you know, protecting the citizens of Crimea, protecting the citizens of Donbass from, you know, Ukrainian Nazi-esque supremacist, you know, just vitriolic terror that we've seen since 2014. You know, we hoped that that was the flux of the conflict, right? But unfortunately, you know, citizens, we saw those videos from Johnny Miller. I'm sure you may have seen those on Twitter, Hervollier. We've been following mm-hmm. Johnny for a long time. I mean, he was just by the ocean. By I mean, I've spent time in the Mediterranean, in the, you know, near the Black Sea, than any, you know, cities Mediterranean dock and coast where families play. And there's just bombs exploding in the air and air defenses, you know, operating directly overhead. It's almost, it's it's despite how far we are into this war, it's still somewhat bizarre to see.
2: Yeah, Johnny Miller's great. I love his uh, stuff. And, you know, I, I visited, I went to, on 2016, I think it was 2016, I, I've got Alzheimer's. I don't remember the years anymore. 2016, 17, <laughs> I, I went on this trip with Sharon Tennyson. So she's elderly lady now, but since the 80s, she's been doing U.S.-Russia peace diplomacy. She's got the Center for Citizens Initiatives, and she's been taking groups of people back and forth between, you know, Russians to America, Americans to Russia citizen diplomacy. And I signed up, uh, for three weeks, you know, the, the, pre, the year before I went, Ray McGovern went on the trip, uh, who I've interviewed, uh, and I went with Rick Sterling, cool guy, uh, and David Swanson of world, I think world beyond war was in my group. Um, and we, 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 uh, I got to, we went to Moscow, St. Petersburg, and then we broke up. I went to Kazan, Tatarstan, others went to Crimea and elsewhere. But even in I think in Kazan, I met some Crimeans who were saying, you know, we, we we voted, we all were pretty much Russian. We wanted to be part of Crimea. It was, you know, emotional. There were Russians, you know, crying. There was vodka. There was it was a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, when it comes to what you're saying, the, the seriousness of Russia, you know, I don't have an opinion. I don't have an answer. You know, there's some people out there in alternative media who say, you know, they've got their thesis. They double and triple down on it, even if sometimes it doesn't really pan out and you know there i think there are elements some people think about you know money and and attention on their channels and stuff but i you know i don't have an answer sometimes i wonder you know i've had i've talked to riley Wagaman and, and ronald slavsky and nikola mikovic and you know the the pepe escobars and all these people in between and i try to form i try to take everything in and i'm like put everything on the table okay what what's going on what's going on and I can see both, you know, and I, I think it's still too early in the game because sometimes you wonder why is Russia, you know, Paul Krug Roberts, who I've interviewed over half half dozen times, he's like Putin is being weak. That's dangerous because he's just allowing the crazy Pentagon to just escalate and escalate until we get off to World War Three. So, you know, Roberts has got a point. Is is Russia maybe weaker than it really uh, portents to be or is russia playing the long game you know sun Tzu type of thing which again there's precedent historically they've done that and they've won right with the napoleon and hitler the scorched earth they pull they pulled into the heart of russia as the french went into the winter and that was the winning tactic right and so i, I don't know May, you know maybe putin is biding time uh waiting for the dollar to collapse you know, I've interviewed Francis Boyle, who's great, and uh, I used his book um, Libya on Gaddafi in my courses. Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm, fam- I'm in his book, our, our viral, our, our interview on COVID went viral in 2020, um, 300,000 views before it got taken down. I think it was seen by millions, but lived, Destroying World Order, where he explains in 2011, for example, when U.S.-NATO just they passed that resolution and then bombed Libya. At that point, Russia and China were too weak. They could, they absolutely could not do anything. So they just threw Gaddafi and Libya to the dogs. R- Russia and China—that's Boyle's thesis in his book, and you know he's got some authority. And I think it makes sense. And so it's like at that time, Russia and China were biding time, growing their economy, rebuilding their state and sovereignty, militarizing, right, building the hypersonics and all that. So I could, I could see that. Right now, still, you know what I'm saying. So they're still militarizing, biding time, letting the dollar slowly decline and and the collapse. And so, I don't know, or or maybe Russia is is weak and incompetent. You, you see what I'm saying? I don't have an answer. I could see both scenarios.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think I think there is um the fact that there are so many, so many unknowns and there's this fog of war, or even you could say cultural, political fog, even all of. Even those in Russia right now, those living in Moscow, don't necessarily know what exactly will happen a week from now. Like, you don't know if a progoshen is going to drive, as we've seen through Rostov and, um, you know, towards Moscow. You don't know if uh, a new mobilization wave will begin or if there's going to be, uh, say, the bank reforms, like the ruble, for example, reaching 100 rubles per US dollar. Like, that is like, uh, you know, and and the central bank in Russia announcing that we're going to float the ruble as an economic strategy. And if any economists, uh, economists are listening, I just want to ask is floating your primary currency even a valid strategy like is that something you learn in school or university because from what i understand it not right it's just bizarre and strange and so we're not even sure what the central bank in russia does and it's just not just me talking max kaiser has commented on the fact that well no one really knows what the central bank in russia is doing to its to the ruble and sadgard has repeatedly like spam like there's almost three episodes a week sadgard releases commenting on the fact that the russian central bank is just not patriotic and essentially, essentially sabotaging the country, right? But the central bank is essentially, you know, you can say somewhat government controlled. So there should be some, at least political say from the Kremlin as to what should take place with the Russian rebel. But uh, again, the country is under massive sanctions. So perhaps they do have some economic, uh, you know, short term as well as long term strategy. But the, the fact that it's unknown, it does lead to ourselves and other geopolitical, you could say, um, cultural, even political commentators it does give us some leeway in order to provide speculations and not all the speculations are unreasonable some of them even the mo- the most unreasonable ones sometimes could come into fruition i think especially given the fact that you have know, as i said popular figures like prigozhin you know in june he does something and in august he's dead and we don't hear about him anymore simply he disappears off the planet because well he just he was killed in a in a terrorist act in a and we still don't know who the perpetrator was and simply these mysteries will simply exist and i don't even think we'll ha- actually have answers and no we won't get answers as to well who exactly tried to bomb the Kerch bridge or for example we, we don't know what the ukrainians have lined up for the russian side and we don't know exactly what the russians have lined up for the ukrainian side and even the russians on the ground like you see interviews we've um commented on the interview of gabriel the russian one of the descendants of the, of the Romanovs. And he says, well, during his, he's been a Donbass, you can say a Donbass rebel, a volunteer in the Donbass wars for about five years. And he says, there's almost no communication from the high, from the high command in Russia, from the, from the military generals. You don't know what the top echelons of military you know, strategy are actually doing. You don't know what a Shogur or a Gerasimov is planning with the SMO. So if you're, if you're just a lion man sitting in the trenches, you'll know what your sergeant or your lieutenant or your captain will tell you, but you don't know anything further than that. There's not like a, a telegram chat and you you have a Gerasimov just like sending it a Discord announcement of some sort, right? It's like, th- that's not how the real world works. And for, for us, I guess, being analysts, uh, you know, sitting behind the computer, we do have this bird's eye view, whereas someone in the trenches may not have that, especially if he doesn't have an internet connection. So... It's uh, we do have, I guess, that freedom, and it is our duty to give a, I guess, an objective or more or less unbiased position. Or, you know, we all have biases, so I I think as long as we're honest with ourselves and we're speaking in good faith, I think that's the most that can be asked of us. So, I think well, that's why I like listening to your content, or even Conrad's opinions or Dr. Steve Turley, because they all differ in some ways, but then you can kind of build a bigger a bigger picture of exactly what's happening especially in countries like the United States me not myself not being an american it's harder to grasp exactly what's happening overseas but in russia yeah russia is um the russian ukrainian conflict is a big question mark and in fact you know could we be moving towards a peace deal uh, potentially zelensky's speech to the un has shown that he's actually not willing to go for peace but it seems like that europe europe and the us it seems like with the lack of support that you know Kind of the, the economic package that Zelensky is receiving is not as large as as the last one. So perhaps maybe there is some of that pressure to force Zelensky to perhaps sign a peace agreement. You know, you won't get Crimea, buddy. You won't get you won't get the the eastern regions of Donbass, but you'll just have to settle for what you have now. But on the other hand, you have the Russian side releasing advertisements telling, you know, and in the military adver- recruitments, recruitment ads, you have the Russian soldiers speaking about how they're going to buy real estate in Kiev and Odessa. Which is, you know, if they re- imagine if back during like the uh, you can say Yugoslavian civil wars, for example, if like in the Serbian military they were releasing videos about how they're going to start buying, you know, Serb soldiers are going to start buying Croatian real estate. I mean, it would be considered almost act of an act of war and an act of aggression. But today. And it would kind of show on the Serbian side that, look, they'd want a reunited Yugoslavia. But today you have these ads in Russia and still they kind of tell you that, look, we still don't know if Russia is willing to do that, to go there to actually escalate the conflict to the point of having an SMO 2.0, having a mobile second mobilization wave. There's a lot of mystery there. and Me and Conrad, uh, of course, we we kind of do provide our opinion week to week because, again, some of the news, you know, they, they, do, they do give us, they do shed light on exactly what the... What the top thinkers in Russia are considering, and look, it's not just us who are confused. People like Alexander Dugin, right, the esteemed Eurasianist professor, who essentially create—you can say—was the mastermind behind Eurasianism, and you know, perhaps he he was somewhat of a globalist in the past as well, given his I suppose non-Christian materials that he used to write about and speak about, and you know it does it does give the perspective that look it's not just us who are confused this it's everybody frankly everybody uh who even insiders don't really know what what the main decision makers will be will be calling for here yeah you know
2: i was going to yeah. joke about Prigozhin. i might run i might run into him uh, on a desolate mexican beach yeah you know nobody knows but yeah and i i you i forget his name russell texas bentley i think the the guy from texas out in dunbass I, i've interviewed him Yeah, and yeah, yeah. What, yeah, what what you mentioned about some of the complaints about the soldiers in dunbass not having any idea what's going on or communications you know he's reiterated that that, that, that same feeling
0: yeah well he's uh he's from uh about 40 minutes from where i live out in marble falls so You know, I've I've watched a lot of his content. I remember it was great. I wish his YouTube channel hadn't gotten taken down as fast as it did at the beginning of the special military operation because it was great content. But the conflict itself, what we're talking about in Crimea, like you said, while on the one hand, the Western sponsors do seem to want to start to take this down, they've given Zelensky so much stuff and he seems not willing to do so that, I mean, what they just struck the naval headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet and, you know, caved in the building and hit it with a, like a big, a big western cruise missiles so the very like the russians are not hitting those level of strategic targets in kiev as consistently as the ukrainians are and look we get it the ukrainians you know getting backed into a corner perhaps they're getting desperate and we know that you know depending on how harsh this winter is russia may make a move sooner rather than later but again at a certain level you have to start to wonder would a truly patriotic like a christian leadership, would this be how they're conducting their special military operation? And look, not a military expert, can't say, I know for sure, but I think we can all say that we want to spill the least amount of, you know, the blood of the least amount of young men as possible and have this be, you know, ended as quickly as possible without, with, you know, with the least amount of globalist ramifications in the midst of, you know, the reshufflings that come in large-scale conflicts, you know, as possible. So we're always keeping it in our prayers, but, you know, to, I guess you know, move on towards a slightly different part of the world. I think some of the biggest news recently was Bashar al-Assad in China at the behest of Xi Jinping, got flown out on a very luxurious private, you know, Chinese aircraft. And uh, it appears the first time that he's been in 20 years. And, you know, China, you know, China really has been thriving in the Middle East more than I've seen almost anything. Of course, we see intense, you know, discussions around the Saudi-Iran stuff where Saudi saying that they need to get the bomb, need to get, you know, nuclear weapons and nuclear energy if Iran does. And China, you know, just brokered the Saudi-Iranian peace deal. So Ravoya, yeah, I'm wondering your thoughts on, uh, on the current situation in the Middle East with Assad and China and with, you know, all those countries around there. We recently saw Netanyahu showing a map to the UN that had all of Gaza and Palestine completely in Israel, which you know it's not as extensive as the Likud finance minister showing the map of all of greater Israel on his uh, podium that one time but it's a little bit you know he's making sure that they show that you know they all they always are showing the correct maps there and everything so it seems that you know things are very much we talked about Turkey and Azerbaijan Armenia up there just south you know the turkish army is active in Syria and that whole region seems to be uh seems to be in flux
2: yeah i mean i've been studying Syria following the situation for a decade you know while I was teaching foreign policy international relations at the university you know I've I've even had on my program former British ambassador Peter Ford ambassador to Syria I I gotta get him back on it's been many many years Um, and of course Kevork of Syriana analysis I'm trying to think uh, who else I, I did with my students I had a, one of my students had a classmate or someone she knew who was a Syrian refugee many years back and we, we we talked to him. So I've been following this for a while and, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's clearly been a regime change operation against uh, Assad. I even got the, tr- I got into trouble because, you know, you had the Michael Flynn uh, at my school, uh, Michael Flynn, you know, who was the head of the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, and then 2012 there was this document declassified from the DIA, which basically, the document basically said that Saudi Arabia, you know, Europe, I think Turkey, Israel as well, US, uh, intentionally, knowingly, they, they supported the Salafists, the Takfiri, the ISIS, Al-Qaeda. Uh, they, they were doing it intentionally against Syria. And I had a student here in Mexico who was actually an American. And his mother got angry that I was saying the US was financing isis i'm like it's in the document you know and she sent a mail to my ire up saying you got this teacher who's a anti-american conspiracy theorist and i'm like my superiors didn't care because I do like a good
0: uh, job. Uh-huh. I think you'll like this story just before I don't want to forget it has exactly to do with that. It was when I was converting to orthodoxy, I was um I got catechized at a Antiochian parish in Brooklyn. I, it was this parish that was almost entirely, you know, ethnically Syrian and had a lot of people that were, you know, born in Syria and had, you know, come over in the, you know, midst of the civil war and everything. And you know, the Syrian Christians faced a lot of hardship from from all fronts from from everybody. They were one of the you know the Christians in the Middle East have been the ones that have demographically suffered the most since the all of the U.S.'s and Israel's wars over there. But I went there and I started going, and there are lovely people and everything. But a lot of them still speak Arabic. And you know, at coffee hour, you know, they'd be a little hesitant and a little suspicious of you know Americans. You know, they knew the score, everything going on there. But I talked to some of the more you know some of the more outgoing ones, and eventually I was just talking about politics, talking about things, and I was just and I don't know how it came up, but I was like, yeah, well, we know you know Israel and the United States fund ISIS, and then they all look at me and they're like you know about like Israel and the U S funding ISIS. I was like, yeah, yeah. And then suddenly they're like, Oh, this guy, and they're like patting me on the back. <laughs> they're like, Oh, you know, cause like, they weren't like treating me poorly or anything, but they were just kind of like, you know, does this person really know what's going on? Does this person, you know, understand what, uh, you know, they, what they were, uh, it, they just kind of had a uh, perspective of, uh, of the u.s government and empire that they didn't want to necessarily show an american that was trying to come to their church but once they understood that i knew the score as well they were like oh yeah you know let's talk about it and do all of this so it was uh, it, i thought that was a pretty funny story
2: yeah that, that that's hilarious and y- y- you're right you know i would tell like my student who's this american he was purportedly qu- christian you, you just made the great point, you know, when you think about Israel and Palestine, you know, I'm for a state of Israel. I'm not like, you know, the standard fair American evangelicals who, you know, blindly just, you know, you, you can't criticize the state of Israel. I'm like, well, no, I mean, look what they're doing. Is, is it Christian or brotherly what they're literally people have been living for generations in their house in the Israeli government? supporting settlers destroying their homes you know that's not christian some of those people
0: are palestinian christians so if you're an american it's illegal to preach the gospel it's illegal to preach the gospel over there so
2: yeah yeah and so i guess my point is like like you're saying a lot of the syrians are are, the the christian syrians are dying as a result of the american and european quote democratic governments you know, financing Islamic j- mercenary jihadists, and so that's absolutely absolutely insane. But you know what? What you're saying about this now strategic partnership uh, between China and Syria, I often read uh, Sana, the Syrian Arab news agency, is a good outlet. Yeah, I ju- I just feel like going back to prophecy. I could see this the kings of the east. You know, talks about the kings of the east coming together. It's it really it really feels like multipolarity is the kings of the east: Russia, Iran, Syria, China. You know, many more countries in between the gulf states it feels like they're coming together uh and you know I, I do think of the prophecy maybe at some point you know right now they're coming together and i think maybe in the future there will be this battle between east and west and west will maybe be decimated and you know i i, I think maybe maybe as there, was, there there's the prophecy i'm looking at it now isaiah 17 you know maybe it was fulfilled previously maybe not but it says damascus will not be a city any longer it will be only a pile of ruins you know maybe that refers to some as a result of some future war so right now you know syria china they're all getting together uh you know maybe that refers to a future war but i just see this as more confirmation of countries coming together and i that kind of makes me think the west things aren't aren't looking good you know uh for the west gordon han um i've had him on my program he's a good uh, analyst of Russia. I think he lives somewhere in Russia, maybe Crimea. I'm not sure. But he just recently posted, he's very academic. He just posted something really good saying that uh, all in all, things just don't look good for the West, you know, in in terms of uh, I'm trying to find the exact quote, but, you know, he's saying uh, here it is globally. The correlation of forces is shifting. And as I have written numerous times, not in the West's favor. So, you know, Syria and China come together i think that's just another sign of you know i worry about at some point the rug's going to be pulled from under europe and and america this the consequence of the U- ukrainian war europe is being deindustrialized i've had ontario maison the french intellectual of a voltaire network who said that guy meton the swiss journalist i've interviewed who said the same thing europe is just collapsing and america as well so I think we could also link that to prophecy.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think living in relative peace for the last I mean, not to speak it doesn't speak for everybody, but the majority of the Western world and you know have been living in relative peace besides the occasional, you know, terrorist act and you know, random false flag by our own governments. Mm-hmm. um and you know obviously that the covid madness we we've, we've had relative peace and prosperity for the last you can say since the end of the cold war roughly and it has it has kind of put us in this lukewarm state where we forget not just about the bible and the fact that there are these prophecies awaiting us and also you know even the um tradition of the orthodox church speaks very openly about future calamities coming for us, especially for our internal sins, which, we, you know, we do see our culture degrading to a great extent in the first world, in the English speaking world, it's all, it's almost like a wake-up call is required. And of course, that wake-up call may come from abroad, may come in the form of foreign invasion, foreign destruction. And, you know, for folks listening who think that, well, that's a little bit radical, like that surely won't ever happen. But let's just remember, you know, Conrad said, um, the Christians in the Middle East, they have the they have essentially a capital city, which certainly does not exist any longer, Antioch. So the Orthodox Christians of, Antio- of the Antiochian church, they live in Damascus now. The, the city of Antioch no longer exists. It has been wiped off the face of the earth by wars, by conflicts, and now, of course, earthquakes as well recently. But simply, God does allow for you know human sin and human error to, you know, God does allow for these, uh, he permits for this evil to take place and for these the, for certain cities to completely Uh, to completely be destroyed.
0: Well, Havoya, you mentioned Damascus in ruins and everything. And I think it's just curious how, you know, despite everything, you know, specifically, you know, Netanyahu, the Likud government remains in power. We talk about how Syria, you're right, they're coming together with China and everything. And in a future war, I mean, Israel bombs Damascus and the Damascus airport on an almost weekly basis Mm -hmm. at this point. And like you just said, Dimitri, Damascus is 25% Orthodox, well, not Orthodox Christian. One of the largest representatives is Orthodox Christian, of course. So it's you know a very Christian city in the in the Middle East, relatively speaking. And, and we've talked so much on the show about you know eventually you know we talk you know the Antichrist you know will eventually reign from a seat in Jerusalem. And there are members of you know certain radical you know Hasidic sects and whatnot. We've we've read the articles in Ortho Christian about how for years they've been doing the mock sacrifice and you know we don't try we say you know no man knows the hour and everything but on the temple mount they've been doing the mock sacrifice you know people have talked about how there are certain people who have perhaps expertly built replicas of the third temple and they're being stored in warehouses to be moved somewhere. You know, again we don't like to speculate too much on these things because you know God will reveal these those things to us in his time. But Hervoya I think you're right. We're thinking of the kings of the East we're thinking of you know based on current governments who would side with who I mean we're seeing you know sides that would make sense in a third world war and some of our ether hour episodes I've shown my my schizophrenic world war three map that I made back in 2020 which I'm a little spooked at how accurate it came to be in the mid, I made that well before the I was one of the people that thought that perhaps Russia wouldn't go in you know I was I had thought they would go in for so long that I was just kind of whatever, maybe it's just never happening. And then it did happen. And that map I made turned out to be, you know, so weirdly accurate. So I'm, I'm, I'm ready for anything at this point, you know, people always say team, nothing ever happens is the big thing. But, you know, ever since COVID and the Ukrainian invasion, and even since the Trump election, it seems to me that it just gets up right to the point where you think nothing ever happens. And then boom, something sure enough happens, right? So I think that seems to be the world we're
2: in. As they say, careful what you wish for. And there's a great documentary uh, on the Shin Bet, right? Like the Israeli domestic intelligence where everyone should watch it, where I think it was in the 90s, there was this extremist Israeli Jewish group within within Israel who plotted to blow up the Al-Aqsa mosque on the Temple Mount. I, I think part of it was what you detailed, this desire to eventually... Recreate the temple for the third time. The Shin Bet had to stop them, right? I, I I don't know if they put them in jail or whatever, but they stopped them. They said if that happened, you know, it'd be World War Three. You you'd have Muslims, not just from the region, but from like the Asian uh Islamic countries, all flooding in. You know, to Israel, it'd be like World War Three. So Shin Bet had to uh stop you know I, I stop that. And I got to visit the Temple Mount. I think it was 2018. So I got to visit Israel. I I stood in the Israeli side of the Golan. Uh, heights and and visited uh, Bethlehem and so yeah I kind of agree with what what you guys sort of uh, laid out there pretty much and yeah I've read all that stuff that they've got everything ready they've got the red heifers they've got everything to recreate the temple the problem is the Al Aqsa Mosque is there on the temple I remember being on the Temple Mount and I have read this stuff even been going uh, before going there for many years that you know it it could possibly be that the the uh the previous temple. Was not actually where the Al Aqsa is, but right next to it, you know. Uh, and so, you know, maybe some situation where uh, will happen where they build right next to it, or or some, you know, you've got the the the, the Abrahamic faith thing. W- w- where is that in UAE or Saudi Arabia where they built the three? Yeah. Uh, you you know what I'm talking about. So maybe something like that will will allow them to get approval to build the temple mount next to Al Aqsa, or maybe it'll be blown up, you know, and then as a result we get the third temple built. And so there was an interesting article recently as a result of this deal. Was it EMEC, the India, Middle East, Europe corridor uh, deal that will situate Israel like at the crossroads of all of this interconnectivity. Um, mm-hmm. There was an article saying that like back in the 19th century, that there was some rabbi that predicted how Israel and, and the temple mount would be rebuilt and and it would be between all of these, all this rail connectivity, and and you know, kind of like they were sort of predicting how Israel would sit at the crossroads of all this c- connectivity that would come about in the future,
0: uh, and so yeah, I think I think that's sort of the the trend we're looking at going forward. Well, and we also, um, you mentioned those things about the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and Saint Paisios predicted that around. I mean frankly, not so far from our own era right now that the Al-Aqsa Mosque would be destroyed. And he foretold the Turkish invasion of Cyprus. He predicted the COVID vaccinations <laughs> and uh, all sorts of things. So I think um, what he had to say is somewhat important regarding all of this. And he you know, he also talked about ultimate war between Russia and Turkey. And you talk about that, that trade route that Israel is hoping to be at the center of. I see the Turkish world as a crucial part of that. I've mentioned before how compared to perhaps Persian ascendancy, Arab ascendancy, any kind of Caucasian Christian ascendancy, Russian ascendancy. Israelis seem to be as the most okay with Turkic ascendancy and the creation of, you know, in Armenia, the section, the taking of Nagorno Karabakh sets Azerbaijan up strategically to eventually secure a small strip of the southern Armenian panhandle, the Zangazar corridor, to run full supplies, oil pipelines, military through that region to the Caspian Sea, Azerbaijan, you know, main Israel ally. And that's a key to what we're just talking about with these trade routes in Israel. And it's so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's how a lot of this is being shaped up. And again, we talked, it kind of relates to what we were talking about with Ukraine and the new heavenly Jerusalem with, again, you know, how would that fare into something like this, right? I mean, Crimea, you see people like Gunther Fellinger talking about how Crimea should be turned back into Tatarstan and, you know, (laughs) you know, and given basically back to Turkey and whatnot, and meanwhile, you know, we've heard about so much, you know, there will be fighting in the Black Sea when it comes to a Turkish-Russian conflict. And we've talked a lot on the show about how, you know, I'm here in America when things start to talk, we start to hear about the draft, I'm going to have to talk to Hervollier about, you know, doing the passport thing and getting come other come places on because, I'm, because I'm just not interested in getting fried with a directed energy weapon on the Bosphorus Straits. It's just not, it's just not how I want to go out, especially fighting for a uh, fighting for this gay country <laughs> well we'll have to you know I've, I've heard there was a
2: clip i saw recently construction workers they're building the fence and one of the gringo white guys was saying telling the mexican-american worker like hey you know trump is arrested you why you keep building the fence what what yeah and he's like well the mexican government is building for the paying for the the fence they're afraid that when <laughs> the dollar collapses all the Americans will to fly into Mexico. You know, it's kind of like the day after tomorrow uh, scenario. You know, and then Ron Paul, I, I looked it up. Twenty eleven, I think he made that statement that the, the wall is to keep Americans in, you know, not to keep us <laughs> uh, foreigners out. And so, yeah, you know, we'll c- come on down. I think he, it's it's not that difficult for Mexico. You you can do the you do the temporary visa. You get the annual temporary visa. It's easy to get, and then you renew it like four years and then you get the permanent i think you know i think after 5 years you get uh citizenship so or just marry a mexican 2 years later you're you're
1: <laughs> yeah i think it's uh it's 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 really important to just consider that um israeli turkic alliance in the future because it is you know it harkens back to uh, in a way our, our recent our episode from um, which we only released a few days ago episode 17 which we do speak about that past Kazarian alliance of the turkic peoples and and the former, you know, I guess you can say the proto-Israelis, but so it's not like this hasn't happened in the past, and in fact, we have seen Erdogan in many ways find uh, find some sort of connection with Israel. There is that United States middleman middle which kind of unites everybody, and Erdogan has been seen as this es- almost eschatological figure in terms of his, his impact on, you know, his strong policies, uh, you know, some of his uh, strong policies against the Greeks, as well as his I guess he's sort of like a Middle Eastern juggernaut in a way. Like Russia has to contend with him. Putin's recent meeting with Erdogan in Sochi, uh, having invited Erdogan and meeting with him in person, as opposed to just sending Lavrov, does show that Putin himself needs to make this massive, uh, you know, influential figure. And you know, we, we've spoken about the Turkey collection at, at length. The fact that it was defining for not not just Middle Eastern politics, but also Russian-Ukrainian relations and the war going on right now. I think it's uh, also just in relation to the church, (laughs) like you'll probably notice, we do speak about church issues quite a bit and missionary work, things like that. And one of the resolutions to any sort of calamities and and conflicts, I suppose, would be maybe providing missionary work to the Muslim Turkic populations of the Middle East and Central Asia, right? Just, you know, possibly converting them to Christianity or having them come over to be members of the Christian Orthodox Church, for example. And that simply hasn't been done. And our good friend David Erhan has mentioned many times, him living in Istanbul itself, you know, and, and being a sort of native of Turkey, a native Anatolian, you can say, and being a convert to Orthodox Christianity, he has said that the, the efforts of the Greek church in Turkey have been very sparse. There hasn't been, I don't even think there is a Turkish translation of the Bible, like at least in the modern Orthodox Christian copy of the Orthodox study Bible in Turkish. So it is quite quite strange it's almost as if like prophetically right conrad like saint paesius's words it's not like that's even a good thing but simply what will take place will take place because there is this absence of work even from our own side in order to convert the people of turkey because look if if like a, a large percentage of the turks or even the turkey populations do convert to orthodox christianity maybe there won't need to be a massive war between the countries maybe we can resolve things peacefully and amicably but that's simply not taking place for whatever reason the ecumenical patriarch patriarchate is more interested in meddling in ukrainian affairs and inviting zelensky over to meet with him at the fanar in istanbul which is you know very bizarre but nevertheless like going going into that question of Church relations we've seen are probably very controversial. So the nativity of the Theotokos Feast Day took place on the 21st of September in, uh, you know, in those of us on the old calendar and in Bulgaria, actually, on that evening. So the the liturgy was in the morning and that evening on the 21st, the Russian, the head Russian priest, who was uh, his leading priest uh, in the Bulgarian embassy in in the city of Sofia, he was actually deported out of Bulgaria officially. They said he was, uh, well, let me just read the Taz article. They said he was a national threat, or he carries a national threat on himself. So, Archimandrite Vassian was uh, told by the Bulgarian authorities that he needed to leave Bulgaria, and he's just the priest serving there, and on this wonderful feast day. So, finally, even the Bulgarian Orthodox Church and the Bulgarian government somehow are, I guess, maybe it's their EU-NATO ties, perhaps. Or even Bulgarian history is quite difficult, but we do see pressures on the Russian Church. uh, I mean, Referencing that article, Conrad, that everybody's been posting from the United States, right? That look, the U.S. government is finally looking at the Orthodox communities as a potential uh, as a potential place of Russian influence. Bulgaria seems to be following along, so it's like maybe it's again we were speaking about green lights and red lines, but you know, once somebody gives the thumbs up, you know, in the, like it's like a George Soros or somebody in the World Economic Forum, and everybody around the world simply follows suit and follows the same sort of strategy. So we have. You know, Archimandar uh, Vasyan being deported. And in Ukraine, like the, the persecutions, of course, continue. The Ukrainian government has, the Ministry of Culture has released a list of 72 churches, most of them quite old, as some of them as old as, you know, 500 years that need to be uh, destroyed or moved you know, so rebuilt, because they they simply stand on, you know, grounds which should be reserved for other cultural sites or simply they're just uh, an inconvenience to Kiev, for example. So it's not just the Church of the Tibes we spoke about last week, which has had you know, incredible miracles occur inside of it, and also miracle-working icons, you know, streaming myrrh and people being healed and things like that, demons being exorcised, but also just the Kiev, the, the, the government of Kiev seems to completely disregard their own Ukrainian I guess, uh, holy places for, for, and for what? So it seems like the government is completely anti-Christian. It's not just us who are the zealous, uh, the zealous people pushing this rhetoric. It's the government itself is, uh, seemingly, um, trying to force that. And of course, Uh, You know the bishops being tried at court. uh, Bishop Theodosius of Cherkasy, as the the Jewish folks visiting Uman are sort of unmolested and essentially conducting their pilgrimage in 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 Uman. The bishop of that particular territory is being tried in a Ukrainian court for his pro-Russian attitudes and some of the books they found at his inside of his office. So Bishop Theodosius is you know again uh, being included in hearings and other bishops have sent in character statements, videos. Ukrainian bishops, mind you, native ukrainian-born priests are sending videos protecting their own hierarchy, saying oh, look he's actually he he was born in Cherkasy. he was he's a native ukrainian he's not pro-russian he's just an orthodox bishop who just speaks his opinion why can't he have a certain opinion on say the russian-ukrainian war or the future of russia and ukraine again these things are not allowed free speech is being suppressed on a local level and it does paint this picture of you know globalist control so persecution naturally continues um but you know, there, there are of course good news. For example, like there was a sermon from the Metropolitan of the Svetogorsk Lavra, which we speak about. That's a lavra right on my. If you go to my Twitter, it's uh, it's actually our a 4 hour um display photograph on all the videos. So If you, yeah, so our a for hour Serbogorsk Lavra, um, picture actually, yeah, is just a, just that monastery. So in that monastery, the head Metropolitan, the head uh, caretaker of that monastery, gave a sermon where he spoke about how the Orthodox faith actually assists the people of Donetsk and Lugansk, and has assisted, like he's given examples. He said that i visited Donetsk and Lugansk many times, and those volunteers who actually practice the Orthodox faith, is, it has helped with their post-war PTSD syndrome and various other psychological disorders. So actually being active in the Christian faith, a very, very good sermon from Metropolitan Arsenius, and kind of he did say that there was almost miraculous healings as well that happened when people actually attend communion, confession, and this is him speaking about the volunteers and the so-called Donbass rebels who have been at war for almost eight to nine years. So you can imagine a large portion of their own lives. And, you know, kids have been born under this. So uh, that's quite um, quite positive, you know, amidst all of the destruction going on there. there is this: The Christian faith is still thriving and still well and truly alive.
0: Well, I think it's really important that we always... Give you an update on the persecutions in the church and the Bulgarian thing is, you know, very disheartening. And, you know, look, the Bulgarians, you know, they've always had their beef with the surrounding Orthodox countries, but, you know, and the Soviet Union time was rough, but they were persecuting everybody. Where's the love for the, you know, liberation from the Ottoman Empire and, you know, all sorts of, you know, the times that they, you know, when they, when they were there for them, you know, we need to be, we're a family, right? But I think in regarding the persecution and whatnot, I want to tease next week's World War now. We're gonna be having another guest, back-to-back guests, almost never seen before. But we're gonna be joined by Father John Whiteford, one of the a very a close favorite of the uh you know, of the show, someone that we really love. And he's gonna to talk to us about all sorts of stuff in the church. And, you know, he's very well educated on all of this, so You know, we're we're looking forward to all of that. But, you know, we're kind of wrapping up here. Hervoye, I don't know if you have any thoughts on church persecution stuff in Ukraine. You're a Christian man. I'm sure you're disheartened to see it like the rest of us are. I don't know. You know, maybe you're a much more well-traveled man than me. I think uh, maybe you can tell us some of if there's any cool Orthodox places you've been as well. We'd love to hear about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm. I don't have much insight into the Orthodox world. You know, it was interesting last year. I went back home to Croatia for three months, and the local church I attend there that's that's uh, you know Baptist. Usually over the summer, you get an influx of a lot of foreigners, uh, Christian foreigners, and it was you know there were Ukrainian in, in you know Ukrainian Christians, uh, Russians at the same time, and all of, from all over um Europe and it was you know interesting to see that some of them had fled Ukraine and were living in uh, Croatia at the time but uh, w- you know one interesting experience that I did have was again when I went to Russia six years ago or, or whenever that was in Kazan Tatarstan we got a tour you know some of the local media and politicians were there they treated us very well and they took us to an orthodox church and yeah I think it was Kazan and they explained to us they may have been the first time i ever was in an orthodox church and they explained during the soviet union what had transpired there was you know the, the soviet union killed a lot of killed a lot of people you know even the church that i attended the sister church of the the, the the church that i attended in kazakhstan that was based in almaty they had a museum they told me you know in the 20th century during the soviet union which kazakhstan was a part of uh that the christians there you know it was like in the 1920s they they Put together money they built a, a building for their church then the soviet government came and demolished it then they saved up money again and rebuilt it and then it was expropriated by the by the soviet government and then at some point you know they came in i, I don't know what year that was 40s 50s or 60s or whatever they took all of the men you know dozens of men 30 never seen again you know and that was in kazakhstan and so in kazan they told us that they filled the church with believers It was a relatively small church, and they told us that it was filled like sardines in the can. Like, if you imagine the space of the church where they just filled it with all of the people standing, but they were all just shoulder to shoulder, you know, like uh, sardines in a can. And then they took him up to the bell tower and threw them down and killed them. And that the grounds underneath the church were, that's where they were buried. Like, it was filled with uh, uh, bones. And so it was really you know on my trip to hear this story told to us in Kazan at the Orthodox Church that this is what the Soviet government did to some believers so you know that was like jaw jaw dropping moment but to end on a lighter note you know I, <laughs> yeah. I i when it comes to ukraine i feel a bit uh you know i think it's it's in good hands you, know, you probably saw the news zelensky has asked serbian satanist occultist marina abramovich t- to be an ambassador oh, for ukraine so Uh, you know, I think we're it's it's gonna we're gonna be all right.
0: (laughs) Maybe that's why the poll you know, the polls you know, we we hate on them on this show, but maybe that was what pushed them over the line. Maybe that's why they're like, you know what? No, we're done supporting Ukraine now. You brought Marina Abramovich on. You know, that's uh we could we could hope their motives would be oh so noble, but uh, with all of that, uh, thank you so much for coming on, Hervoye. You know, this has been a delightful conversation. This, I think we've perfectly timed the timing of this conversation, perfect length to this episode. So uh, I would love to, uh, well, Dimitri, I'll give you the opportunity to say anything else on what we're saying, and then we'll we'll close this out.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot has taken place this week, but we just, we pray that, you know, everybody's safe and, you know, everybody attends church, whichever Christian denomination you you belong to definitely keep reading keep reading the the bible and keep discerning of course uh stay open-minded we uh we of course all all agree that we do need to fight against this globalist technocracy that's being built not just in the west but also in eastern countries i think all around the world there are sort of it's like uh, tentacles on an octopus right it's like you just have to kind of fight the tentacle that has been given reign over you you know locally and you know, you do what you can, of course, in your own power, and uh, God willing, we'll all um, come out on top at the end of the day, even in terms of this information warfare, which is happening, at least online, where we kind of fight our battle. And in saying that, I think it has been officially one year since the mobilized, since mobilization has begun in the Russian Federation and since Surovikin took control of the SMO. And it has been exactly one year, actually, on this episode that me and Conrad agreed to start the World War Now show. And actually, we recorded our episode, I believe, end of September last year, our first World War Now episode. As a part, um, you can say almost a part of the World War Now lore is that as the Russians began mobilization, we mobilized to fight the info war, <laughs> which is very romantic. But I think, um, it does speak a lot as to our attitudes towards all of this. It does, uh, you know, what's happening in the world, at least since since the time of COVID, I think we have seen an escalation, and Huoriye has confirmed that. Look. This escalation is is in fact real. It's not just the, our, our minds are not, not, not just delusional. We're not just incredibly critical of what's happening in the world. We're not just sort of members of the opposition opposing our local governments. No, in fact, I think... What's happening in the world is very, it's very important. We need to pay attention to some of the, some of the, these critical details and uh, having these guests on, on the, on the show, having you listeners, of course, participate and give us feedback. It does, it does paint a bigger picture for us of, you know, exactly which events are taking place and transpiring, especially from all around the world. We like to hear different opinions. So we appreciate our our Greek commentators. Those of you from India, um, you know, China, we have uh, commentators, you know, who literally, message me on twitter for example and they just speak in their native languages and i just have to translate the tweets because you know it's technology allows us to communicate globally which is it's not really globalism but it's more like the benefits of technology assisting us in spreading our opinions without forcing it on one another but yeah we definitely appreciate your time here and conrad really really good input uh i mean it's it's been a it's been an awesome week and we hope we hope uh that you guys enjoy the episode
0: I think this has been a great, a great thing to happen in our year anniversary. I remember right after releasing that article and episode, Hervoye messaged me and was like, <laughs> "World War now! Like this is such a great idea! Like I basically totally agree with your premise." And I'm like, "Thank you, somebody that gets it!" Like that was like, that was like my first thought. It was like, I'm not crazy for thinking that we've already entered, you know, the third world war. It just hasn't entered, you know, its hottest phases yet, but. You know, with all of that, Hervey plug anything you want. We'll have it all linked below, and send send the people off with your final words.
2: Yeah, I actually feel special now being on around the one year uh, mark. And yeah, you know, I in the earlier days I was able to keep up with your podcast, but you know, when I you, know, you got a kids, and I can't keep up with anything these days. TNT, geopolitics, kids. But I was listening to the free preview of your eighth or hour. So I, I, you know, keep up the great work. Love your stuff and. Uh, you guys are, I mean, you're, you guys are welcome anytime uh, on my TNT radio and even geopolitics and empire. Um, yeah. Just the websites, dot uh, tntradio.live. I'm on there daily for two hours and I just started a sub stack as well. So, uh, you know, people can support as well. Uh, if If they feel they get value through the, those websites and yeah.
0: Right, we'll have the substack on our recommended substacks. We've got, we make sure only the best of the best are on our recommended substack because we actually I, have I a will, lot of traffic there. So uh, I will add we'll you guys to there.
2: mine right now, too. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, be sure to subscribe to Hervoye's stuff. He really has a broad spectrum. Like again, the Geopolitics and Empire Telegram, frankly, is just one of my favorite Telegram channels to just follow and stay up to date with. So, you know, do that. We'll have it linked below. And with all of that, you know where to find our stuff, worldwarnow.substack.com. Follow us on Telegram, World War Now Telly. Follow us on Twitter at World War Now underscore. Follow me on Twitter at GnomeRad. Follow Dimitri on Twitter at OCanonist, you know, the Orthodox canonist. Uh, follow us on Rumble World War Now. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Like, we're getting closer and closer to 3,000 subscribers, so get us over that line. Maybe we'll do some more live streams, do a 3,000 subscriber live stream. We know you guys like the streams, so we'll get back on that. Maybe some Twitter spaces. Yeah, expect Father John next week. We've got a lot of guests on Ether Hour coming up. Don't want to spoil it too much, but crazy slate of guests, so be sure to get behind the paywall. Check out our most recent episode about New Heavenly Jerusalem. Really controversial, spicy stuff, so don't expect to see too much of it on YouTube. But with all of that, uh, yeah, uh, like, subscribe, Thank you so much for listening and God bless. Thank you guys.